Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Had loads of people getting in touch with me after last week's Rutger Bregman episode. I think partly because he's, I think, just such an inspiring, different thinker. And if, if you are interested in his work, I, I like I said, I, I don't think I could have done a more complete job of, of talking up his books last week. But uh, I've put a transcript of the conversation that I had with him on the website. If you are interested in that, you'll find it at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And uh, or you could while you're there, you could sign up for the newsletter, which arrives in uh, over 10,000 email inboxes every broadly every Tuesday evening. Never quite know when to send it. But if you do want to sign up for that, um, it's it's a big collection of people who are interested in workplace culture and improving their work. Lovely conversation for today's episode. I'm talking to Elizabeth Uvibanene, and Elizabeth is a columnist for the Financial Times, but she's just one of the those people who is really helping to shape an evolving culture when it comes to how voices are heard. So Elizabeth, alongside Yomi, uh, Yomi Adikoki, wrote Slay in Your Lane, the Black Girl's Bible. Huge seller. Um, I think, you know, as we're going to discuss today, the publishing industry is often incredibly conservative. So firstly, to get a book like that published is just an incredible accomplishment. But then to sell it in the numbers it has uh, is a real tribute to Elizabeth and Yomi's real vision of what was going to happen. So um, today... Uh, Elizabeth is going to be talking about her new book, which is, I think, a fresh perspective on the way that we should be rethinking work, society, the way we operate. You know, we're all coming out of pandemic. We're all coming out of this moment where we've been forced to reflect on doing things differently. And uh, Elizabeth's new book, The Reset, Ideas to Change How We Work and Live, is a very readable tangy take on that. So to give you a, an outline, Elizabeth is an FT writer. One of the things that she's observed along the way is that she wrote an article about burnout on the Financial Times a couple of years ago, and it was one of the most read articles of the month. She's had experience of working in big corporates and also being this you know groundbreaking writer. We're going to talk about various things, an interesting perspective on purpose, um, just the the appetite for change that there is out there, and you know what it was like to write a book as iconic and successful as Slay in Your Lane. So it's a, a great discussion. I loved it actually. It's a really fresh perspective on some of the issues that we're all affected by, and uh, I mean we we talk later on about these people who are remarkably prodigiously successful but Elizabeth this is her third book and she's 28 so uh, shout out to her so here's the author of the reset Elizabeth Uvibinelli Liz thank you so much for for chatting to me here I'm so thrilled to to talk to you no thanks for having me Bruce I'm really, really looking forward to this well it must be exciting actually you've written a book about I think capturing a degree of the spirit of change as we're all infused impossibly and against all of our better judgment with this sort of pervasive optimism right now. So you've written a really timely book and mm. were you sort of sitting on these ideas for a long time and this just felt like a, the moment to get them out? 
tell me what inspired you to write the reset yeah no so I've always been kind of like fascinated about the way we work how we work why um and that's what led me to like my first book um slaying the lane so when that book came out I still had questions that went beyond what it is to be a young black woman in a workplace and um and just generally so I have a column at the FT where I write about work generally and um I just you know was just quite curious and um I had the idea of the reset before um, before the pandemic. And back then it was going to be called out of office when work isn't working. And that was because I just didn't feel as if there were millions of people that were going into work and loads of people that were leaving um, because they just didn't feel satisfied around the way they were working. And I saw that a lot with like young black women like myself, but I saw that with, um, with, you know, white men and, you know, people with living with disabilities and, you know, mothers. And there was just a real kind of like inflexibility um, about the workplace and how people wanted to work. And there was a real tension there that I just didn't understand. And I think for me, I was like, okay, I really want to write about this. And um, so I started speaking to a publisher about this and the pandemic hit and it just took on this life of its own, to be honest. And yeah, the reset. Fab, fantastic. I, I just want to take it one step back. So you mentioned Slay in Your Lane there. So obviously mm. you wrote this book with Yomi um, and it was all about, yeah. as you said, their sort of black woman's perspective of modern life. Yeah. So um, the challenges that I guess, you know, black women face um, and you know, living and growing up in, in, in Britain and, and essentially how we navigate things such as work, um, but also areas such as, you know, the health health industry in, in the UK, um, healthcare and, and access to that, some of the challenges, the education system. So it was a real, um, so it's called Slaying the Black Girl Bible. So it's a real kind of like um, 120,000 words of just a real in-depth um, analysis of these things told through our voices, me and Yomi, but also um, 40 brilliant, successful black British women. Um, so that, but the genesis of the book started around um, the fact that I wanted a book that spoke to my experiences of what it is to be a black woman in the workplace. And it just folded out into so many different areas. Tell me the story of that, because that book to mm-hmm. me seems like it's been a real phenomenon. It feels, yeah. you know, it feels <laughs> just like it caught a moment. And mm. I um, I know the publishing industry a little bit. And so I'm yeah. really astonished that they said that there was a market in, you know, you've effectively chosen a really specific cohort and spoke so helpfully and, and directly to, to that group that, that that group has felt you know, inspired, it's created a movement, it's created a sense of, of pride and identity in that group. But I just know the publishing sector, w- was it hard to mm. get that book published? Do you know what, this is such a good question, because this, so we pub- we came up with the idea 20, March 2015, so it's a while ago now, and this was before the kind of, you know, diversity boom with Black Panther, with, you know, Beyonce dropping Lemonade and like her album and there was just a real kind like of synergy. I like the fact you're putting your book with Lemonade. <laughs> Come on. Of course I had to do that. <laughs> and Black Panther. It was a very, you know, a cultural renaissance in terms of even Black British identity in the UK, people like Stormzy. And there's a real kind of like, um, this was before that. So this was 2015 and this stuff was like three years later. Um, so to your, answer your question, was it hard? I think it was, we felt like, very much outsiders looking in into this industry and we didn't know where to begin and we we do what everybody does you know you have an idea or and you have you know you have questions and you just go to google so at first so we didn't know anybody we didn't have any contacts and um we were very much naive i was like you know 22 so um we were very much outside looking in and wanted to write this book we didn't want to go down the self-published route and because we wanted to walk into a waterstones a w smiths and a foils and see our book with every other book and not sideline to, you know, you have to self-publish because nobody else yeah. is going to publish your book. Or So um, was it difficult? I think the hardest part was pulling the, together and proving that there was a market in our proposal. That was the biggest thing because before this, before Slaying Lane, there wasn't books geared towards black mm-hmm. women. Now, like there are so many and in that's fiction, amazing. In non-fiction, it's like, you know, it's, it seems like it's a really active and a high purchasing uh, segment of the market. I love the fact that you said high purchasing because that was, that's a key thing in non-fiction books. Like how can you prove a market? How do you prove that black women want to read about other black women doing well? Of course, we, we know because we, we read about white women 
do well yeah. so why wouldn't we want to yeah. read about ourselves so i think that yeah. we knew in our like in our spirit and like you know in our, we were very passionate we knew this was something that was going to do well but it was kind of like how do you translate that into, into data into a real kind of thing that you're speaking the publisher's language i.e is it going to make money so i think before then so we had to was it hard i think that was the, probably the most challenging part you know going on that um the office of national statistics and pulling together like things and how many black women are in the uk versus how many this and so we were very much much like into the detail and like it paid off like tremendously afterwards because we kind of like you know crossed all our t's and dot, dotted all our i's and yeah fantastic so I, i'm just in, incredibly impressed what was your motivating factor I, I chatted to yomi and yomi said that her experience that wasn't it wasn't a podcast it was just to chat me and her and uh and she said mm-hmm. her experience was that she was seeing so many black women of her age go into careers and, you know, having performed at elite level at university and got a great degree and then go into university, uh, go into careers. And there was, there was sort of so much latent aggression in the office that she found it was very difficult in a, and you know, she, she had a good job and, and she found it very difficult to hold that down against the spirit. I, I, I'm putting words probably go, going further than than I could directly quote her but she she felt that there was like there was a, mm. there was an undercurrent of of latent latent aggression to to young black women mm. was that one of the motivations of writing the book have I have I even have, have I even sort of misremembered that um no I think you're you're absolutely right I think for me it was it was two things one being the fact that I was um I looked at my boss, he was white, his boss was white, his boss was white, his boss was white. And there was a real kind of like, if I was, if I'm a very strategic person and, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm the smartest, you know, cooking the box, but like in school I had like average grades apart from English. So I've always been very much like just getting along with, getting on with things in life. Um, but I looked at my, the workplace and I thought, if I'm going to really try and get ahead here, I'm going to have to, you know, change who I am and mold myself into something mm. else because the, the the version of what I'm presented as like in terms of what leadership looks like doesn't look like me so I'm going to I can't hide the fact that you know I'm black I can't have that I'm a woman so how am I going to kind of succeed in this in this structure I, I, you know I was working for a big bank and I was like you know I was made to feel certain aspects that I could succeed but I would have to change and that was done through things such as microaggressions and people speaking over you and just little things to make you think that you have to work twice as hard to be heard, to be seen. Um, but you're already quite visible. So, because you're, you know, you, you, you don't look like everybody else. So I really had to ask myself, like, could I do it? Could I strategically, you know, get up, um, the, the ladder and really try to kind of, you know, mold myself and be this version of myself that I, I knew I had what it took, you know, to do that. But, I asked myself the second question, is it desirable? Is it something I want to do for myself? And I think it was the second question for me that changed things. It was like, I could do this, but it's not desirable. I would be giving up a lot of like, you know, who I am. And like, I didn't want to compromise on that. And I knew that other women, other black women felt similarly. So, um, so though, yeah, so that was where it kind of came from that sense of like, there must be another way to do things. And I'm a very curious person. I was a curious child. I always ask, I would annoyingly ask my parents and people around me, like, why this, why that? Like, so I, that spirit of curiosity just made me think to myself, there must be another way. So that's what led me to read books such as Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And then, you know, that fateful conversation I had with Yomi, where I said to her, you're a writer, you're a journalist, like, I need to write, I need you to do this very small favor for me, this very small favor and write this book for me. And <laughs> she, you know, as best friends do, you can do it too, girl. And then we ended up partnering up, but, but it was definitely not something I saw in myself. I definitely saw it in her right. and she saw it in me. And right. yeah. And, and just quickly, cause we're going to talk about the reset now. So how did you, so you did this mm. anthology that came out um, sort of last year, which was the loud black girls, which was, I guess, sort of continuing the spirit of that. I mean, and, and, putting other people yeah. on how did you choose the the women to write in that um so we had met so many amazing women um along the journey after publishing staying lane in 2018 and we how do we choose them we also random so with staying lane it was very much we want to you know we're looking very much at the past and um women who are 
of a previous generation to us. With this, with Loud Black Girls, we just want to take on a new different type of energy. So we, it was very random how we came to kind of pick the women. It was people that we kind of met along the way, along our journey. Um, there was a, there's a girl called Sophia Thakul. She's a poet and she's so incredibly talented. And I remember I went to a, an award show and she was there performing with Stylist, um, Stylist Remarkable Women's Award. And she was performing on the stage and I just got goosebumps and like her words. Like I'm not really a big poetry fan, like, um, and spoken words. And, but she just spoke to me in a different level. So I remember texting Yomi and saying, she's got to be in this book, like right. her, the way with words. So it was very random in that way. And everybody's there because they have something to say, something unique to say, something vibrant, something that's going to add to the conversation and every essay that we have in this anthology is so unique. And, um, yeah, it's just so feature looking. And that's why I think it's, yeah, it's really resonated with people. Poetry is a funny one, isn't it? It's like, I think a lot of us would say we're not necessarily poetry fans but sometimes poetry can really hit you in your emotions it can really sort of unexpectedly like, yeah and it's and when it does that it sort of knocks you off your feet so um absolutely yeah. you know and 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 when a poet gets it right like the uh the talented woman from the presidential inauguration um when a when a poet gets it right it, it sort of stays with you for days and days and days it's got this sort of in, enduring quality to it um tell mm. me this so, so uh so you've basically sort of taken on you know you, you thought with with the the reset you you're thinking about how we can do things different actually sort of just questioning some of the ways that we do things it wasn't your piece was it yeah. on the financial times saying that millennials and gen z's think that work is crazy i was gonna i was gonna say that that's a good concept <laughs> but, um, i'm not sure if that was your piece or not but that's sort of the spirit of what you're saying Absolutely. And it's so funny because every time I've got a column at the FT, so every time I write at the FT, I try to inject like the fact that, you know, I am millennial and I, there's a different perspective here and the comments just go crazy because it's like, you're not that special. You're no different to us. <laughs> so it's so funny. So sometimes I know that if I drop a millennial, that it's going to get people going and I don't yes. know if it's right or wrong. but And it's quite good for that then. It just people just are like, you're just such a such a slow flake. But I think it's good to kind of talk about the, the, the commonalities, but the differences, especially when it comes to work. Um, I I write about the fact that, you know, there is a real kind of energy when it comes to millennials and gen and gen Z about how much we are vocal about the about the, our treatment in the workplace and how we want to do things differently. It's not saying that we're revolutionaries and you know whether you know the first ever were the first ever have done anything, but I think there's a real sense of like you know what why why I'm, we're asking more questions and we're asking more of the businesses that we work for more than you know I guess previous generations have and um, and I think that that's what's quite different about what we are like. The conversations that we're creating is not saying we're the first to ever say it, but I think we're saying it in large in larger volumes, and you know we're using terms such as burnout in you know in in popular culture in a way that it can only be a good thing because it's not we're not it's we use you know we're talking about mental health in a way that is is at the forefront of why we want to work in a particular way, and I think that sometimes at work it, it can be it can we can feel powerless and and we can resolve. Res- we can go to this whole parent-child relationship that I want to kind of get away from where you, in every, uh, sorry, in every area of life, we are comfortable talking about what we want for ourselves and advocate. But for some reason, when it comes to the world of work, we wait for our managers to kind of, you know, tell like there's a real kind of disempowerment that I don't feel that our generation want to go along with and we want to speak out and we want to, you know, really break out away from that. And I think that's why I like to highlight about there is a difference and it's not saying whether we're the best and whether we're this but we do think think about things differently what's your what's your take on the, the whole idea because so much of work right now is packaged up as sort of part of our identity and one of the ways that effectively mm-hmm. work tries to do that is by to- talking about purpose and trying to suggest that the the job that firms are doing has, has got this sort of greater societal needs to it and you talk a little bit about purpose but I'm interested in how you reflect on the way that firms use purpose and 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 invite individuals to have purpose that's such a good question and and that's something that I think is a conversation 
more than anything. Like I think, and it's so specific to each individual. I don't really buy into the whole, you know, you have to like, have I, you have to see work as part of your identity. And, you know, if you're not saving the world and if your work isn't attached to a broader mission, then you are not successful. And all of those things will, you know, I don't really buy into that. But I also, I think it's a very individual approach. And, um, and I think for so long, it can feel like if you're not, if you're not, if your work isn't basically, you know, sticking up to the people, whatever it is, and you're not, you may feel like you have to be an activist at work. There must, there must be something that you're taking away from it. And it can be the opposite. You just, you just literally, I've met people who they, you know, they, they do their work and then they want what they do at work to be left, left at work and have two separate identities and things like that. And I personally, for me, I'm, I'm, I know that when I worked at the the bank where I worked three years ago, I know that I was definitely, I was happy with the work I was doing, but it wasn't, it didn't fulfill me in a way that the work I do now like does. But I guess that's because, you know, I can come up with an idea and write a book about it. So I'm not saying that's, you know, for everybody, but I am saying that what I especially like about like how I work now is I can bring more parts of myself to the work. And I think that makes it richer. And I think that's what I enjoy about it. I am not, you know, covering who I am and parts of my identity in order to fit an idea of what a leader should be and what, you know, what things should be. I can be a bit, you know, like, I wouldn't say I can be a bit different. I can be a bit individual and and have, and bring the fact that the fact that I did grow up in South London, I'm, I am, you know, 28 and, and, you know, I have a different perspective and I can bring that to the work I do. But I think before three years ago, I didn't feel comfortable doing that because all I saw was I had to be something else and I'm never going to be that thing. So that was always, a, I guess, a tension for me. Um, but that's just, that's just me. And I think when you talk about purpose in businesses and how, you know, businesses can, I think some businesses use it as a way to, to, I think the way talent now, talent, I think as a business right now, if you if you don't have a deeper reason to be, to operate other than profit, you're going to lose out on talent sooner rather than later. Because I think that you are, the people who are going to go a bit extra mile and all of those things are going to be people who kind of see that purpose in the bigger bigger mission of the company that they work for. That's just my belief. Um, and that rightly or wrongly, like that's just how I feel like businesses these days, if you're not tackling a big problem and if you're not contributing, all you do is just take, then I think that's going to, you know, I don't think that's going to be sustainable for many people. Do you think it gets misappropriated though? I, I'm really struck with the, um, I was looking in something uh, about the VW Dieselgate affair and the, mm. I've, I've spent so long looking at this and, and one of the interpretations of the VW Dieselgate affair is this, you know, this is where they, they had to, um, the, their engines were failing the emission standard yeah. in California. And so they, they needed to make their, their car engines cleaner. And the boss was very famous as a shouter and he threatened to fire them all. But there was a really interesting thing where, you know, they told themselves actually one of the reasons, the engineers working on this, they told themselves that actually they were doing good because their car was, um, despite the fact it was failing the certain emission standards. It was producing less, um, less greenhouse gases. So mm. it was a more efficient engine in other ways. It was just quite bad on these specific emissions. So they told themselves, the people who were working on it, you know, okay, we're, we're bad, but we're good in our own way, which is a completely deceptive version of reality. And sometimes that, for me, is an indication of how firms use purpose, that they pretend that they've got this elegant uh, role mm. of trying to improve sanitation in the third world. And they tell everyone about it. And, you know, our job is about helping people. In the, they're not doing that. They're spending – they're greenwashing. In fact, you've probably seen this thing. Yeah. There's, um, these an organization of, of lawyers who set about trying to present, prevent brands from greenwashing themselves. So when BP come out and say, yeah. we're investing in the renewable future, they want it to be the law that BP have to sp- say, we spend less than 0.1% of our money on renewables. You can't just misdirect people. And, and that's sometimes what I find with corporate purpose. It's a little bit like that. It's sort of the big marketing campaign campaign that sits at the edge of the toxic waste dump 
Is, is, is that fair? I mean, I do get your point about B Corps and about businesses mm. needing meeting, but I just wonder if there's something in the fact that it's it's used inappropriately at times. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I'm an author, but I also work um, as a brand strategist with, you know, with businesses. And I that's part of the job that I also have to kind of contend with, like, um, as well. So I definitely agree with you. And I think that consumers are becoming way more savvier in highlighting these things and, and making sure that like, you know, brands and businesses aren't just, like you said, greenwashing and they are missing. And I think there's a real, there's a tension because we do want them to play more of a bigger role because we're seeing the fact that like brands and businesses have more of more power than some governments. Like, so we can't just sit back and just say, or you can, all we want from you is just pure profit. So we're holding them into a different like accountability. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I do think that businesses um, mis- mis- misuse it, but that's because we're asking more of them. And I think the new, I feel like Gen Z and millennials are asking for them to, um, like, as the stats show, like, you know, I think there's, I think it was something, 94% of consumers, you know, believe that brands we love should have a stronger purpose. So there is that want, I think how it's done. And I think that's the thing about authenticity and transparency. It's more so about how things are done. And some brands and some businesses overstretch themselves because all they want to do is just sell that t-shirt. And they're not really, it's not something that, you know, it's something that has to permeate all through the bill, all through their, their, um, their business, not just, you know, in the marketing. Do you think the, the, um, the sort of coronavirus is going to force us to have a realignment of the way we think about our families, about community, about friends, about our full relationship with the the sort of the cities mm. we live in and the the world we operate in. Absolutely, I think so. I think that I I've never spent so much time in Croydon. <laughs> I've never spent so much time in my local community and seeing, you know, the same people every single day. And there's a real kind of like feel, community feel, and that I just don't feel like I want to ever get rid of. Like I want to build upon. It would be such a shame if the, there are some gains that we've made during this time and, you know, richer relationships with some family members and friends. And um, and I feel like it's individual to each one of us. But I do think that there is a real sense of like, I don't yes I'm happy that you know things are going back to normal and like they're we're out of a pandemic and things like that but I think there was something there was something really special about how we all came together and there's a real belonging there's a real kind of like connection and I think that's very that's a, that says a lot because London is can be such a lonely place for many people there are so many people here but um I talk about it in a book saying that you know there's there's a real sense of loneliness and that kind of that kind of you can see you can see loneliness um the stats around loneliness kind of laced in things such as, you know, depression and anxiety and, um, you know, mental health um, problems and things like that. And I feel like that's been one of the things that I've kind of experienced being in spending so much time in Croydon and being part of something um, and seeing these people every single day and people looking out for each other. You just don't always get that um, pre-pandemic. I have to be so honest with you. It just feels as if everybody was very much out for themselves and it was very individual and we just went about our days. And I think there was something really nice about um, slowing down. And and I feel like it'd be such a shame if we kind of lost that. So I think it's going to change I spoke to Sadiq Khan as part of as part of the book, and obviously he has a vested interest in making sure that London is still vibrant and people are still coming in the centre of London. And he was talking about you know the high streets for all, um, how it's not people changing why people coming coming into London. So it's not just about offices and talk for work, but it's about play and how can we. Um, how to play in leisure and how can we kind of change that so it suits more people and it isn't just you know um and that kind of adds to the whole you know green recovery that people talk about so I think that there are loads of conversations that are happening and I think it's, it's I find it super exciting because like I said we're never going to get this point again it feels like a special time in history and there are so many games to be made and how things are done and how things could be done and yeah, I'm super optimistic about Go on that. Then. So, uh, Sadiq Khan, I was going to ask you about. So, so if you were going to give Sadiq Khan mm. two pointers about what you think the, the Mayor of London has spectacularly almost no powers, but, you know, if, if you were advising the Prime Minister <laughs> um, uh, and you were going to give the Prime Minister a couple of pointers, let's look into that. So, so what do you think we need to be doing? That's a big I question, know, Bruce. That's a big question. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> 
Well, 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 it's just Bruce. an interesting point, isn't it? And we could just sort of reflect on it now. It's like, you know, okay, we've mm. we've seen that actually people are able to see the good in each other a bit more. And there's like weird things like, you know, you'll know well Croydon or, or North London or wherever you live, that people have started chatting to their mm. neighbours more than they did. These neighbour WhatsApp groups, these sort of – there is a – there's evidence – I have a WhatsApp. Do yeah, you? I had a building WhatsApp group. I cannot believe yeah, it. Man. I had to leave though because the, the notifications were just a bit mad. It, it was a spit too much. Like, you leave? Are they <laughs> seeing you as the snooty woman who lives at number twenty? Of course they are. <laughs> and of course, and you know what it is? It's because but do you not know happen. There was a big neighbor. There was a big um, building one. So, but then we we've, we've created like um, niche right. ones. It's people who are interested in different Every things. Every group always so spits up a, into the subgroup, yeah. man exactly so in a whatsapp group full of like three almost 200 people it just the notification was a bit crazy so what happened was every, people were just talking about everything within you know 24 7 and um all the all the boilers right. gone like is, is your hot heat is your heating working today so it just got a yeah, bit like generic and so what we what yeah, so what we found was people that were really interested in, like, um, the people interested in bird watching. So there's a bird watching group um, that's, that broke away. There were people that were interested in, like, um, in cooking and recipes. And so I'm in that group. And so there's just different groups. And like, I found that so special. Yeah. And we're all in the same building. And now we see each other. And, um, and it's just so wonderful. There's, re- there's something for so fascinating in that, isn't there? Sort of in-group identity and actually sort of when you can find... Often the challenge for us is that we've got so many... I, I think uh, this one guy calls it the variable self. You know, we've got so many different ways that yeah. we can present ourselves. But when one of your variable selves meets someone else who's got the same interest in you uh, as you, it it is so powerful that connection and it's it's an interesting thing point that you make because to some extent because we've been deprived that non-work connection in the last 12 months we've seen humanity yeah. in other places in our cities and it's probably a healthy thing mm. you know to, to the to the discussion we've just had on on purpose at work i do wonder if one of the things that we've been able to witness this year is that we've all been in a cult. We've all been, you know, the people who, who do a job, <laughs> we've all been in a cult. And it's been like, I've got to get mm. to work for this time. If I don't get to work this time, the cult leader will be very unhappy. If I don't oh do gosh. this, the cult leader will be. And, you know, we've all been, um, <laughs> we've been hypnotized into thinking this is the only way to live. And it's why it's, there's, a, there's this extraordinary thing, which now we've been had the scales knocked from our eyes and, and seen that there is a different way to live. When the cult leaders in some organisations are saying, we want you all back in the office, there's a degree like, you know, you've you sort of captured the sense of it. But there's, there's some people saying, I, actually, I don't think it needs to be like that. And it's it's such an interesting, um, potentially revolutionary moment for people to be reflecting on those things. Absolutely. And what you said about the cult leadership, that's so true. I call it like a parent-child relationship because it's like that thing, when you're younger, when you're younger and your pe- your, your mum is like, you've got to be home at this time and, you know, you're running behind. And, and you, like, my heart used to beat when my dad used to say that. And I would be so like, like I would be, I would be so nervous. And that's how I used to feel at work. And I didn't understand that. I was like, but what are they going to do? Beat me. Like, I didn't, like, what is it? I didn't understand the, like, the kind of fear um, that people had around their, around that. And I think that it's, we needed to, we needed to be broken away, like taken away from our desks. I think, honestly, I think this time away, yes, it has been very challenging for so many people and for, you know, especially how we work. But I think that it's, it's also injected a real reality that, in all honesty, we have one life and we we have we are more empowered to 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 be in the driving seat of that. And so it was so like I don't know if you've seen that viral post on LinkedIn about the guy who um yeah. had a heart attack and he was like thinking the first thing he thought about was his boss and the ne- and then the third thing was his wife. That was just, and somebody on Twitter was like, I hope your wife didn't, hasn't read this because the fact that you thought about her third is so crazy. No, but I think, I think what he's saying though, isn't he? He's, he's reflecting on that internity. That guy was in the New York Times. Oh my gosh, I saw that. Yeah. Like, you know, properly. It's so interesting. These things that break through that transcend, but that, that comment, that guy on LinkedIn who, you know, so anyone who hasn't seen it, there's a guy who 
posted a photograph of him in hospital. He had a heart attack. He'd been on these back-to-back Zoom calls since the 12th of Never, like the rest of us. And he had a heart attack. And the first thing he thought as he was having his heart attack was, oh, no, 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 this will make me late for something with my boss. And, you know, witness the fact, you know, he's in a cult or he's in this parent-child relationship. Um, but in, when I saw that on LinkedIn, the first comment was from someone, it was, I think this would be better on Facebook, my friend. It's like... <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> oh god, it's because sometimes on LinkedIn there are things I think this would be better on Facebook and Instagram. Why is this on LinkedIn? But that yeah, yeah. I posted post specifically post. on the last election day. I posted something political on there. Um, yeah, just telling people who they should vote for. Because I, partly because I thought it would go down very badly, and um, <laughs> and it produced like a day of arguing. People start telling me that this. This needed to, to be on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I'm going to post it here. Don't you tell me what to do. <laughs> um, okay. You know, I, I think it's really interesting because I think that LinkedIn guy gives us a sort of hint of, you know, mm. this whole societal desire for a bit of change that you've you've really sort of, you've captured the moment with this yeah. book. What would be the reason why you, you know, if the previous books you've written are, are these really powerful, proud mm. identity moments, what would you say is the, the reason why someone mm. would pick up the reset? Oh, what's the sell? Uh, <laughs> um, in all honesty, <laughs> um, Honestly, I think I like to read books that make me think differently um, about the way the choices I make, because choices are hard work. And I think that it's so easy to go through life and feel like you don't have power and you aren't in, you aren't in control of um, the way you spend your days. And we spend a lot of time at work and I always find it just, you know, it, it boggles my mind that we don't interrogate it enough. We don't interrogate the why we do certain things. And, and, and I think that this book should just empower you to think differently about why you work, how you work and how you live and how these two things are, are interlinked and, 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 and hopefully make choices based on your true self, not what, you know, has been ascribed to you from the first day you started work, you know, back in whenever, like for me, it was what, 2013 when I graduated. Um, And secondly, I will also say that my, I've got a 15 year old sister and she's doing her GCSEs. And I remember last year she said to me, she's like, I said, I was like, how are you? It's like, how are things going? And, um, and she responded over text and she was like, yeah, I just feel, she was like, I just feel so stressed out. I feel burnt out. And she used that term burn out at 15 years old. And I was just like, wow. Like, I just, it just was crazy to me. And I just, but, and it was, I was optimistic at the fact that she could, you know, articulate herself very well in, and, and ascribe a, a, a say and say that, you know, she felt burnt out because I thought you're very smart. Um, but I also thought to myself, it's quite frightening that you feel like this already and, you're going to enter a world of work that's also that's going to make you feel incredibly um, um, tense and burnt out, and mm. that just frightens me. And um, so I think, yes, you know, I'm 28, she's yeah. 15, and the fact that she, I can't, I can't remember feeling burnt out at 15. Don't know what that couldn't even tell you what that meant, and that should that should tell you how this, you know, the the next generation are just going to be super, just very different. And I think they're just yeah. So I would say that that I don't. So I want to kind of you know talk about these things in this way right now so when my younger sister gets into the world of work you know she doesn't feel you know incredibly stressed and felt like the way I did and makes busyness part of her identity and someone's if someone says to her how are you yeah. and she says oh I'm so busy I'm so burnt out I don't want that for her so yeah that's why you should hopefully read my book I'm foolishly optimistic though I don't know if you use much TikTok I use a sort of I, I, I use I use a disgracefully large amount. Of me TikTok. too. <laughs> but the one thing that inspires me about uh, TikTok is that Gen Z, and I know that these brackets are too general and they they are often meaningless. But hot damn, there's so much really brilliant politics on there. And why I love it is because the way they express politics 
doesn't have the weariness. You know, I, the whole of my life, I've witnessed politics as this weird thing that people at college or people at school who just weren't normal, but they sort of saw it as a career for them to go and become a professional politician. And then you see these kids on TikTok, these people on TikTok, these sort of, you know, people your sister's age and, and and older, a little bit older, but expressing things in yeah. such a brilliant and fresh and original way. And it really inspires yeah. me. I just think, wow, okay. Actually, you know, personally, I think unless there's a serious redistribution of, of income, you know, the, there will Absolutely. be something revolutionary or there will be something countercultural that takes place because I don't think it can persist. And, uh, and, and, and when I see, you know, younger people expressing things in that way, it makes me so hopeful. I'm, I'm always asked about this, like what gives me hope and what, and I, I say the exact same thing. It is that younger generation. There is that real sense of voice that I know that it took me a while to kind of feel empowered to use my voice um, and people, and there's a real fearlessness as well. Like I, I'm so excited by it because it is, it t- does take a lot to kind of, you know, go on TikTok and, and say what you, and, and be so honest yeah, about how you feel. And I, I'm excited by that because I do think the older you get, the more you, you feel you have to lose and you, and you just, you, you don't, I don't know. 22-year-old Elizabeth, the reason why she, she came up with the idea of slaying Lane all those years ago is because she, it was like, if not her, then who? Like, if, I thought it was a real naivety that yeah. you have when you're, when you are that age. And I, and when I look, when I'm on TikTok and I, you know, I'm around um, my sister and her friends, I'm, I'm energized by that. And, um, and I think it's, I think we mm. owe it as where we are right now, as people who are in the world of work to, um, be inspired by that, but also know that we have the power to also, you know, play our part. And that's what I, yeah, that's what I want this book to do, to know that there is power in the choices that we make. And it's not just about you. It's about one voice leads to two voices and we're all doing it for ourselves to put each other because it isn't, we can't leave, leave it up to the government or leave it up to, you know, activists or it's just, it's, it's, we are all in this together. And it does sound a bit like, Oh, optimistic and Disney, but it isn't because we've seen things such as Marcus Rashford over the last year, we've seen Black Lives Matter, we've seen so many things that mean that there is power in voices being bound together and we cannot allow where we spend the majority of our time, i.e. work, to feel like it's the one place that we cannot speak up and we cannot advocate for ourselves and other people. Yeah, there's something, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you because you, you didn't wait for anyone to give you permission and you, you know, at the age of 22, you set about <laughs> doing these things. So so you're the inspiration that, alongside those TikTokers that, you know, I, I can I can draw, um, <laughs> I can draw hope from. But, you know, it's really interesting that we, we I think we, we've got an education system that tries to tell people not to wait for permission to do things. And then we send them into a world of work where they're, where they're, they're told, Oof. you know, wait your turn, obey these rules. It doesn't matter whether you think this doesn't make sense. Just keep your head down. If you want to be promoted, you need to conform. And it's like, you know, we often, we, we go out of our way to criticize the education system. And, you know, this that wonderful Ken Robinson TED Talk, which is all about sort of how education drives out the divergent thinking in our heads and, and forces us to, to conform. Yes. But work is way worse than education. You know, work, education, oh, if you yes. speak to good educationalists, they're trying their best and and w- worsely, they sort of self-flagellate. They sort of, you know, they say, we, we, you know, we've got to be more forward-looking. A lot of work doesn't even believe it's got a problem. So, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Bruce, you summed it up. They don't believe it's, mm. they've got a problem, 100%. And, and until things go really wrong, i.e. that guy who, you know, was, um, who went viral on LinkedIn because he had, had a heart attack, um, until things go really wrong, that's when we're like, oh, no. There was a problem all along. And and yeah, so absolutely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a little bit like Sheryl Sandberg's book, though, you know, and I, and I, I sort of yeah. read Lean In, but the, the, the thing that I think, and I read her other book, Plan B, as well, about resilience, and, and the thing that, you know, was really alarming for me was that a, a fundamental lack of empathy that was through her. So until she became pregnant, she couldn't imagine why pregnant women needed parking spaces in big car parks. Or until she was bereaved, she couldn't quite understand why... I mean, it was like remarkably candid, her, her lack of empathy. And, you know, that's what I worry about is that, you know, we, we often see people who these things have come and afflicted them. And all, all of a sudden they realize, oh, well, I need to, to think about this in a fundamentally different way. I put some data out last week. Someone contacted me in Australia. And she said, uh, I've been looking into Australia sort of largely gone back to the office uh, because they didn't really have coronavirus uh, like us. And they um, and she said, I've gathered this data. We, we publish gender balance at every level of every company in Australia, really transparent. And she said, and I've also correlated it with um, the policies of of." Uh, different companies. Anyway, I, you know, with her, we turned it into charts. She wanted to remain anonymous. <laughs> but the thing you find from mm. it is that organizations <laughs> that are really male dominated are asking people to come back to the office. So to your point of the thing we said before, a, lo- a lot that. of work doesn't believe it's got a problem. A lot, <laughs> a lot of work mm-hmm. believes, you know, I think we've mastered how to do work. Thank you very much. We've thank you. Normal yeah. service will now be resumed. And it's just, it's, um, it's remarkable, actually, that, you know, this sort of the patriarchy, that the system that to some extent, to a large extent, has failed us before, has got this sort of persistence that it, it will attempt to come back in some form. Absolutely. And I, and what you were saying about empathy, I talk about empathy so much generally in life. And I think that's something that hopefully the pandemic has addressed a little bit. Um, and the fact that we've all had to kind of, I was saying to somebody the other day, Though, you know, Zoom has not been ideal, it's given us this whole weird, like, through the keyhole of people's lives and, you know, being able to see the fact that, oh, oh, you're into art, like, your bookshelf, there's a real element of, like, like, sometimes when we go into work, we're kind of divorced of our individuality. And when we when we've been at home, we've been able to kind of look at people's screens and look that they actually are people. They actually mm. have lives. They have families. Like, you know, you... And sometimes I used to receive emails from very senior people back in the day. Um, and they would never even, they wouldn't even address me in an email saying, hi, Elizabeth, or whatever. It would be like, I'm too important to, you know, address who you are. You're just a computer to me. You're just somebody who, you know, who I need something to, I need you to do something for me. It's a very transactional right. approach. And their email would always just start with just the request. Like, and it was just that, and I just feel like, there was a lack of empathy and there's a lack of like, you know, um, that we went through work in. And I think there's something really nice about the fact that we had to kind of confront that we are all people, we're all trying to do our best, like, and that we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we need to like be, I don't want to be, oh, be kinder to each other as, as if it's, you know, some, some, some social media posts. But I think there is something that we were kind of going towards before the pandemic that was you know, very, very vicious and making people really unhappy. And I, and I'm not saying the pandemic has fixed anything by any means, but I think it's, you know, opened up the, opened up so much of what was so wrong and hopefully a real optimism now about what could be, what could, you know, what, what could be right about how we, how we move on from this point. And, um, 
I have this, you know, I say this all the time, uh, in life you have to be pushed or you never be ready. Like that's just, and I think that I hope that the book I've written now is that push that people need. And it doesn't mean that's going to solve everything. It's just little things like little things that, but they make a big difference to, to yourself and to other people. So yeah, that's, yeah. Empathy is a big one. Well, I've, I've Loved talking to you. Three books published Same. by the time you're 28, man. <laughs> <laughs> Don't underestimate your own power. Oh, thank so, you. Uh, thank you so much. You, and it's a beautiful looking book, which you, you've uh, told me that you sort of helped carefully curate and worked alongside a, a, a talented team. So, um, so it's uh, a beautiful book. And, and as people are venturing out and going to bookshops at, at long last, hopefully your your ambition to see gloriously laid out in Waterstones will be fulfilled. Amazing. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much. It's been really, really good chatting to you, Bruce. Thank you, Liz. Thank you to Elizabeth, Liz, for that discussion. I'm really grateful for just, actually, I've, I just really enjoyed that chat. It's just a, great to chat to someone who's firstly sort of thought so much about her ideas and and put them down into paper three times it's uh, quite an accomplishment thanks for listening always welcome people hitting me up on social media or linkedin you can always get in touch and uh, i'm grateful for you spending some time with me see you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.